And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're going to be talking about the legal and medical risks in domestic infant adoption. This is such an important topic, especially for people at the very beginning of their adoption journey. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. We do have some evidence that opiate exposure in during pregnancy is later related to challenges with executive functioning, with attention, impulse control, level of activity. But I would mention the caveat that these are not studies that are well controlled. For example, we don't know that um, this is not a genetic risk. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. Creating a Family has lots of resources, including multimedia guides, and we have a multimedia guide that I think will be particularly interesting uh, to the listeners of this show, and that is Choosing an Adoption Agency or Adoption Attorney. I am extremely proud of this resource. We spent a huge amount of time and compiled it. We wanted it to be a go-to, end-all type of resource for people at the very beginning trying to figure out how to hire and what questions to ask, what are the differences. Uh, And it's just chock full of really good information. And we encourage you to get it, and you can do so by going to our website, creatingafamily.org, and you can hover over the word uh, adoption or resources uh, and click on e-guides and it will take you right there. Um, This show is brought underwritten and brought to you by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring Pharmaceutical is pleased to offer their IVF green light program, providing discounts of up to 50% on select IVF products. All cash-paying patients are eligible, and unlike other programs, there are no financial requirements. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold gold sponsors include the Law Offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law, including providing a gestational surrogacy matching program, as well as legal services for independent surrogacy, egg donation, and embryo donation, as well as all adoptions. We also have Adoption Connections. They are a California-based adoption agency working with families throughout the U.S. They are a national pioneer in open adoptions and are respected for their ethical practices, compassion, and openness to adoptive and birth families of all types. And we also have Children's Connection. They are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. We will be covering today the legal and medical risks in domestic infant adoption. We will start by covering the legal considerations in the first half and medical issues in the second half. To talk about the legal risks in domestic infant adoption, we have James Fletcher Thompson. He is an adoption attorney in South Carolina and has been a fellow of the American Academy of Adoption Attorneys since 1993. In the second half, we will have Dr. Lisa Prock. She is an adoption medical specialist and professor at Harvard, and we will, again will be talking with her in the second half covering the medical issues. Welcome, Jim, to Creating a Family. Thank you very much, Dawn. Listen, we're gonna, this is a, a crash course of sorts in some of the legal issues uh, that families, adoptive families, need to know about when they're beginning to consider domestic adoption, domestic infant adoption. And let's start with a really, uh, not an easy one, but a, but a, a basic one, and that is 
is it possible to adopt on your own, or do you need to use an adoption attorney or an adoption agency to adopt a baby? Well, yes, it is possible to adopt um, on one's own. I think um, the the even more difficult question, though, is to envision the kind of adoption that is best for you, best for the birth parent, and best for the child, and that will likely not be adopting on one's own. Um, let me explain. Um, probably up till about uh, five or ten years ago, most birth parents needed an agency or uh, an, a law firm to be able to mediate the match with a prospective adoptive family. Um, that may not have always been true. There certainly were identified adoptions where word of mouth and a friend of a friend identified a, 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 a situation. But now, with the online resources, birth moms can, can certainly, expectant parents, can certainly find an adoptive family directly. So what I have seen happening is, yes, more adoptive parents are going that route, but also what concerns me is the quality of the birth parent services, the quality of counseling services, and the risks that the adopting parents may or may not see for themselves that they had worked or partnered with an agency or an attorney are sometimes eluding adoptive parents. So generally speaking, I think that, yes, adoptive parents can go that direct route, but I think that the quality of the adoption services for all members of the adoption tri triad suffer without the involvement of a qualified adoption professional, such as an agency or attorney or adoption social worker. You know, I would I would agree completely, and I also think there are a lot of of legal pitfalls that that adoptive parents and expectant parents would have no way of knowing about um, issues associated with advertising or uh, uh, attempts that uh, uh, adoptive parents would make to find birth parents. It, just depending on what state you're at, I think there's a lot of pitfalls, and it would be uh, nerve-wracking, to say the least, to try to approach uh, something as complex as an adoption without having a professional resource uh, to guide you. Um, you know, along that line, Dawn, yeah, um, you know, if I may, those professional resources, it's even confusing as to who they are. Because if you look <laughs> yes. at adoption, you know, we look under the yellow pages and we're going to see lots of names usually beginning with A, <laughs> or we look online yes. and a, a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what is the speaking of that? What is the difference between an adoption agency, an adoption attorney, an adoption facilitator, and an adoption consultant? This this is the really I, at the heart of. Go ahead. I apologize. We ended up uh, disconnecting you there for a brief second. I have you back on now, uh, so you All right, can start, well, good. start over. <laughs> yeah, um, just ask yeah, about yeah, the distinction. Yeah, yeah, between an agency well, attorney, I, facilitator, and consultant. So an adoption agency is a, is a licensed, regulated, accredited um, entity that is licensed in each of the 50 states. To say you're an adoption agency is not a term of art. It is an actual a license. Um, for a lawyer, a lawyer has the ethical code of professional conduct to, to, uh, to govern that attorney's involvement. Now, remember, an agency may be a ministry. It may be um, faith-based. It may, may not be, but they, they are working with the guidance and regulation of the state. A lawyer works for a client. Uh, a lawyer cannot be working with you know, typically for more than one client unless their positions are completely aligned. So um, it, with a, a law firm, uh, some states allow private placements being made by law firms similar to an agency. That lawyer would uh, collaborate with an, a, a, a social worker or an adoption professional to do the social work side of the adoption. Um, I think the more sticky approach comes when we have something called facilitators. Uh, the word facilitation is generally a, a positive word in our usual lexicon. But in an adoption, it's not. 
um, there are facilitators, no doubt, that are sincere and their part and their desire to help parties involved. Um, many are are um, well intentioned, I have no doubt. But remember, there is no regulatory body that, that scrutinizes um, either the reasonableness of the fees or the scope and the quality of the services rendered when it is a facilitator. Uh, they need not have a specialized license or any professional certification or educational background to hold themselves out to be a facilitator. So there really are no minimum requirements um, or credentials or training or experience, um, even when it comes to, um, I'll put it in quotes, counseling an expectant mother, um, I think that there's a lot of jeopardy that should comes with a with a person who who does not have those professional credentials. So um, I know that the American Academy of Adoption Attorneys and many others um, th th believe that the use of facilitators is a is a risky undertaking. Um, as to consultants, that typically means that they are not working directly with birth parent services but are helping to direct a person, a prospective adopting parents, let's say, um, towards other professionals such as lawyers or agencies with whom they might work. And I think that they can serve a helpful purpose to, to mediate or in some, in some ways to, to, to know the, the ropes and help an adopting parent get started. Sometimes consultants um, perceive their role at helping adoptive families find prospective expectant um, or expectant parents or expectant moms who may be considering adoption. And I think they, they view their role as trying to be um, helping um, adoptive parents connect with or locate expectant parents. Uh, and, and, and back to facilitators, one other point would be different states have different regulations associated with facilitators, and, and, and in some, it is illegal to use a facilitator. Hence, you need to have that information about your specific state before you get involved in it. And Here's what's even more, if, 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 if Dawn, if someone's going to be working with another state, let's say that the birth, the expected parents from another state, we, we're starting to uh, really um, have different layers of complications if one is using a facilitator because it's not only about uh, the receiving state yeah. laws, good but point. also the sending state's laws. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, we have a question from Luann. She wants to know what is meant by the term adoption-friendly state. She wonders, is there a state that is better than others to try to find an expectant mom who may be wanting to place her child for adoption? Well, that's an interesting question. I <laughs> I think that um, – I mean, I think it's a good question – I think uh, adoption friendly is in the eyes of the beholder. Um, I was thinking the same I thing. I, <laughs> I often think of my home state of South Carolina as being very um, pro-adoption, really pro-birth parent, pre-placement. I think of our state being very pro-adoption, perhaps pro-adoptive parent, post-placement. And what I mean by that, and these are factors that could apply to any state, you know, is the birth parent allowed – counseling? Is she allowed uh, living expenses to assist her um, with necessary expenses that she has? Is she entitled to legal representation at no cost uh, to herself? I think those are, to me, adoption-friendly because we want all members of the adoption triad to feel empowered and um, well-served. I, I, I then kind of shift and say, is it adoption-friendly to have a 30-day revocation period? Probably not, not in my, my view. Um, so revocation periods and the length of time of revocation periods I think might go into the definition of, of whether it's adoption friendly. Um, and, and then in terms of the finality of adoption, whether their laws are strong in different states that recognize the child's need for early permanence and to support um, an adoption once a, an adoptive placement's been made. Those are some of the things I would look at as an adoption-friendly state. You've mentioned a couple of things, revocation period and the finality uh, when an adoption is absolutely final. What are the different time periods that uh, 
prospective adoptive parents need to know about uh, in adoption where expectant parents or birth parents have the right to change their mind or, or at what point they can relinquish their rights? Very good point. There are waiting periods and there are revocation periods and there are periods for the finalization of an adoption. Those are three dates that are important when you judge an adoption-friendly state, if you will. Waiting periods are the period of time after birth, if we're talking about infant adoption, after birth, before a birth parent may consider signing a consent or a relinquishment or a surrender, whatever the term might be for that state. Um, they may be 48 hours or something along that line. Um, my home state of South Carolina has no waiting period, though we impose upon ourselves a 24-hour rule of thumb. Um, other states have revocation periods. That's the period of time after the signing when a birth parent may simply change their mind, um, think better of their decision, notify the agency or the law firm, and the, the birth parents, the child is returned to the, to the birth parent. Um, often you'll see 72 hours or something along that line. Um, my neighboring state of North Carolina um, has a 10-day revocation period. Um, our sister state of North Carolina has a seven-day revocation period. I'll, I'll tell you, South Carolina has no revocation period, and yet the laws of our state require the birth parent to be represented when he or she signs the relinquishment meaning of someone that does not represent the adoptive family, plus another witness, plus a notary. So some of the other states that have these longer revocation periods don't have the same formality when the birth parent enters into the consent. They allow the passage of time to give meaning and substance to the consent. Um, I, I prefer our approach where a birth parent is counseled and signs a consent, and it is valid upon the uh, the signature being given. Those are all factors to look at. Um, and, and, and then the finally, the period of time between the placement yeah. of the child in, in the adoptive home and when the adoption can be finalized uh, is that uniform or uh, throughout the U.S. or does it change by state? It does. It changes by state, and and some states is not even uniform within the state. Um, for instance, an adoption uh, might be able to be. Uh, all states have what we call this post-placement supervision period where there is a the, the home study, if you will, of the adopting parents. There's a pre-placement report, and then there's post-placement supervision. In some states, it's just one visit. In some states, it's a visit every month until the adoption is finalized. Um, often you see two or three visits. Um, that That is something that's um, uniform across the states. But for instance, in my home state of South Carolina, if the child has special needs, we can both lengthen and shorten the period of time. So if we want to finalize after a year, we can do that. If we want to, life, if we want to finalize within just a matter of weeks, we can. So I think that's something to, to think about, really maybe the second part of our conversation um, when you have Dr. Prock in because – Sometimes the medical and social issues, the health of the child, the special needs of the child may govern when one finalizes. We have a question from Emma. She wants to know, is it possible for a birth family to get the child back after an adoption is complete? Okay, so after an adoption is complete is a very different question than what we said before about a, a birth parent changing their mind. Because that's During that revocation period. Time. period. During the revocation period. Yeah. But then there's another the period. After, after the revocation period is over, if there is one, but prior to the finalization, there still is that period of time there where a birth parent can attack an adoption alleging, let's say, that she signed under duress or was coerced in some way. And, again, this is very state-by-state state, um, specific. But even in our state that has no revocation period, a birth parent could seek to withdraw their consent if they proved uh, duress, coercion, or that it was not it was involuntarily entered into. So there's that – I guess you would call that a, a bit of a gray area um, after a revocation period before a finalization. 
the, the question that was asked, though, is what about after the finalization? Right. And there it is absolutely um, sacrosanct um, among the 50 states. I, I had the, the need to do some of that research when I was working on um, some work here in South Carolina, and very, very few states have any reported case of a finalized adoption being overturned. And the vast majority of those states have a very high level of proof. Um, in my state, for instance, it has to be uh, extrinsic fraud, fraud that induces someone not to pursue their case. And I'll just say intrinsic fraud must be proven by clear and convincing evidence. So that's why in South Carolina we have no recorded case, no appellate case of a finalized adoption ever being um, overturned. So from a um, perspective adoptive parent standpoint, as they are assessing the legal risks of a domestic infant adoption, and let's say a specific match, they have been matched with a birth family, no, expectant family, expected parents, what are some factors, what are some of the risk factors that they should, um, that they should consider at this point? Well, I think that um, the way your your radio show today, Dawn, is structured makes good sense because it really is a twofold uh, thing. Uh, the medical and social aspects of the adoption have to be looked at, and of course, Dr. Prock will address those things. If you will, the the adoptive family needs to feel as a connection, whether they feel like they are the proper parents to accept the child that that um, has the the background, um, whether that be special needs or otherwise, to feel that that they have that connection to the opportunity that's been presented to them. Then separately from that, one has to think about legal risk. And so just for me, I divide these things up. Uh, birth parent legal risk would be uh, birth mom legal risk, birth father legal risk. So as far as the birth mom is concerned, obviously she's either going to sign a consent or she's not. But you know what? We don't know that. And she may be very confident in her decision. She may be very adoption-minded. She may have absolutely a heart for adoption. But I would think that if she's matching at the third or fourth or fifth month, that's a risk because adoption looks very different for most expectant parents at the eighth or ninth month than it does at the third or fourth. Mm -hmm. um, if a birth parent seems to be focused on expenses, living expenses, and seems to be more interested in having those needs met than building a connection, whether it be an open adoption or a semi-open adoption, still most birth parents who are um, adoption-minded want to feel a connection to the adoptive family, to feel like they're making a good choice for that child. And if there's more discussion about living expenses than that connection to the adoptive family, I see that as a risk. I think that the maturity of a birth mom, um, you know, in one year when we did in 50 infant adoptions at my law firm, three were teenagers. Um, very few of those um, expectant parents who are young um, chronologically are, are going to choose adoption. And that's especially true if, a, if the expectant parent is not a parent who's delivered before. If you, if you have a parent that's that has delivered a child, is raising a child, um, that parent does not have those same romanticized notions that some parents have who've yet to experience that. And honestly, that's, that's true of adoptive parents too. Um, you know, we, we learn as we go through this. It's just life experience. Mm -hmm. So if, if I'm looking at an expectant parent who is young or hasn't parented another child before, I, look, I see that as a risk. Mm -hmm. I, I then look at that, that birth that uh, expected mother's family support. Do you have, do they know about the pregnancy? Is she keeping it a secret? That's a risk. Does she have people in her family that's, um, if you will, pushing against her adoption plan? That's a risk. If you have family members who are supportive and are involved in the process, that's a positive. So, mm -hmm. so really some of this is, I guess, commonsensical. It's just a sense of whether or not, and then you always have, 
some expectant parents that are strong in their opinion, and they may call you at the third month. They may not have family support. They may have never parented before, and this may be their first pregnancy, and everything's going to be fine. But these are these are factors to look at. Yeah, risk factors, and I would agree with everyone you just said. So let's, birth fathers pose a different issue from a legal perspective. So what are some of the legal issues that we have to consider with expectant fathers? Before the adoption, they would be expectant fathers, so we'll call them by that, not uh, birth fathers. That's right. That's right. Um, I've been working on that, Dawn. You know, some of this, I've been doing this 27 years, and I'm still using some of my old terms, but I'm, I'm getting there. Um, in terms of ex- expectant fathers, I think one of the first things to look at is if the father is going to be named and is going to be participating or if the birth mother is allowed under that state law to not name the identity of the expectant father, this whole John Doe birth father issue. Um, some states truly frown on that, uh, about an expectant mother not naming the identity of the father of the child. Um, my home state um, has had a very different opinion about that. Um, and my state, if a if a expectant father's consent to the adoption is not required, the birth mother need not name him. So said a different way, if he hasn't been living with her, or hasn't been holding himself out to be the father, has not been contributing financially, then our law says his consent to the adoption is not required. That's a, a euphemistic way of saying we can do the adoption without him. He cannot veto the adoption. And our, what, if our law has said, the, what if he doesn't know of the pregnancy, though? Very good question. And isn't that a state-by-state issue? Um, mm-hmm. up, to, up to 2010, that was a big rub in my state. If, a birth, if an expectant mom, for instance, shielded her pregnancy or didn't tell anybody or had lost touch with the uh, – the father of the child, and he learned about things later and came forward, um, his argument would be, hey, I would have done those things if I had known, and I shouldn't be penalized for that. Well, many states and a growing number of states, and talk about adoption-friendly states, here's an example, where we now ask the father to accept an affirmative duty to know of a pregnancy or to be imputed that knowledge based on sexual intercourse. So now in South Carolina, any man who's had sexual intercourse with a woman is on knowledge that there could be a pregnancy. And therefore, he has an affirmative duty. He must be proactive in protecting his rights. So 34 states now have putative father registries. I think that would be an example of an adoption-friendly state where a registry is a database often maintained by the Department of Social Services that's equally applicable to private infant adoptions or or, uh, state adoptions, where a man who believes he may be the father of a child can register his interest, and he registers under the name of the birth mom. And so an adoption professional, an agency or a lawyer, when when they're doing the adoption, they check the database in a confidential way under the name of the birth mom. And if no one has signed up, many states say that's an implied irrevocable waiver of that man's right to receive notice. So, in effect, John Doe doesn't have to be given notice of the adoption because he didn't register. He didn't exercise that proactive duty that he has. Some states go further and actually say failure to register means that that's, a, that's your consent to the adoption. Um, and these, and da- is, these databases these – are- Go ahead. And this is such a good example of why you need a adoption professional to be guiding you because each state approaches just this issue uh, alone, uh, unidentified birth fathers, uh, quite differently. And uh, it's important that you know what your state and how if you're matching independently. It's important that you know what your state's requirements and the birth father's state or the expectant father or the expectant mom's, what the, what her state requires because it could be oh, different. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, we can we can create a difficult law school exam question just there. You know, if the, if the, if the, <laughs> oh, please, if no, the expectant like mom is in, is, you know, she's in one place and the, the conception's in a different place. And so the, 
you know, the, the, the birth father is one place and, <laughs> and then the, the adoption is handled somewhere else. So all of these things do come together. I mean, there is a, a, a path. Most all of these questions have been resolved and almost always resolved in each state. Um, but if I were an adoptive parent, prospective adoptive parent, getting started, I know that it would be important to partner with an adoption professional, either agency or an attorney or agency and attorney, to help uh, navigate those issues. And we have time for one last question, and this one comes from Bethany. She wants to know if a birth grandparent can challenge an adoption. That's a good question. Um, tip, I think that's a state-by-state state issue. I will tell you, though, that uh, um, federal law is, um, gives great deference to fit um, parents. It's the Troxel versus Granville case. And unless the adoptive parents, and if we're talking about infant children, I, I can tell you almost certainly an adoptive uh, I mean, grandparents do not have standing to intervene if the birth parents chose adoption. Um, fit parents are allowed to choose an adoption plan for their child. If, however, it's an older child, and let's say the grandparents had been the primary caretakers for the child for a period of time, there is this de facto parent concept or That's ecological parenthood right. concept. Yeah. Completely different. Yeah, and we were talking, I think, just uh, and Bethany's question was related to domestic infant. Infant well, child, Thompson, I think we're fine. Yeah. Yeah. Jim Thompson, thank you so much for talking to us today about the legal risks in domestic infant adoption. It's a, um, it's complex, and it's interesting, and uh, I really appreciate your, your time and your um, uh, effort to talk about this. Thank you. You're very welcome. Be... Okay. All right, you're listening to Creating a Family. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through and our uh, community through our weekly e-newsletters. We have two, one for adoption and one for infertility. You get to choose. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topics. You can sign up on any page of our website, creatingafamily.org, and you, it's up in the top right side uh, uh, of any page, and you can sign up there. Now we're going to be talking about the medical risks in domestic infant adoption. We have Dr. Lisa Albers-Prock, a pediatrician specializing in adoption medicine at Boston Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard University. Welcome, Dr. Prock, to Creating a Family. Uh, thank you, Dawn. Uh, the first half, we talked about legal risks. The second half, we're going to be talking about medical and health risks associated primarily with uh, domestic infant adoption. Um, as you would imagine, there has been a lot of interest from adoptive parents on the impact of prenatal exposure when adopting a baby in the U.S. Uh, let me just stop to remind uh, people listening here that Creating a Family has extensive resources on this topic in our Adoption Resource Guide, which you can find on our site under Hover Over the Word Adoption in the horizontal menu and click on A to Z Resource Guide. In fact, we have an entire section with many interviews and many articles uh, on the type of prenatal exposure, including alcohol and specific drugs. Um, so I'm going to refer you there because we're not going to be able to get into a great deal of depth. But for this show, which is a, uh, a beginning show for people at the very beginning, we do want to touch on things that adoptive, prospective adoptive parents need to consider uh, when they have been matched or even are just considering in general domestic infant adoption. Um, and, and the first question is, is, is it possible, Dr. Proctor, to, to say what are the most dangerous drugs or substances that an expectant woman can take as far as impact on the fetus or the baby? Uh, I think that's a very good question. Um, I think that one thing to keep in mind is that polysubstance exposure or use of more than one drug might be present. So um, I, I wouldn't say that there are safe drugs to use, either recreational substances or prescription medications. But in addition to 
the risk profile of each thing that a birth mother might be using, it's helpful to consider the cumulative risk of all different things. Um, I think if I were to list the number one thing to avoid, I would probably describe something that's legal in every state here in the United States, and that's alcohol. We have some of the best evidence that long-term um, for a number of generations, we've seen that alcohol exposure prior to birth can lead to significant um, negative effects for children who are prenatally exposed to a significant amount of alcohol. The definition of that is um, is variable, but I think alcohol is probably one of the greater concerns um, for prospective parents. If and, and herein kind of lies the rub, it seems like, because if a expectant mom says that it, that she has taken drugs, what are the odds that she probably has also drank, even if she doesn't self-identify as having um, uh, drank uh, drank alcohol during her pregnancy? Um, I think it's it's hard to guess, um, depending on the age of a birth mother and her history of substance use. Um, it's quite common that women of childbearing years are using alcohol at least three quarters, some people would say. And since at least 50% of pregnancies are unplanned, it's it's quite likely that someone may have been exposed to some alcohol. I want to clarify that um, a lot of a lot of women may be exposed to a small amount of alcohol before they know they're pregnant, while the public health message is to avoid all alcohol if you're pregnant. I'm not so concerned about the occasional social drink prior to knowing that you're pregnant. I think the biggest concerns are really binge drinking of more than three beverages um, at at least once early in the pregnancy or later, um, and the likelihood that someone will be using non-prescription recreational substances that are not legal but would avoid alcohol, um, a rational person would say that's not likely. So I think it's possible someone may be exposed to alcohol, but I think we're really most concerned about higher level of alcohol use um, in contributing to long-term concerns. Okay, so let's go through some of the um, drugs of, of of worry, drugs that uh, adoptive parents will be uh, being notified that they're, and hopefully that adoption professionals are asking expectant women because we do want them to be honest and say what they've taken so that we can find the the best uh, adoptive family for that child and so that the adoptive family can be prepared and be on the lookout for symptoms and get early interventions and uh, and things such as that. So let's talk about something that's becoming an increasing issue right now, and that is opiates, both prescription and non-prescription. What do we know about the impact of opiates on a baby? We do know that uh, infants exposed to a fair amount of opiate use, and it depends on the substance, of course, but prior to birth are more likely to have syndrome, uh, syndrome of withdrawal in the newborn period. Um, we call it um, narcotic abstinence syndrome or NAS. And this is where similar to individuals who are not babies who are using a high amount of opiates will withdraw from a substance. An infant who's born to a mother who's been using a fair amount will show some signs of withdrawal typically in the first few days of life. Uh, what that can look like um, is screen for in the newborn period in the nursery and children may be jittery, have difficulties feeding, self-soothing, um, may have problems with vomiting, diarrhea, may even develop seizures in some cases. And if it's known that someone has been exposed to a narcotic prior to birth or suspected, usually there's a screening po protocol that's put into place in the newborn nursery. And if uh, a particular level of score is reached in that clinical situation, then children are started on a medication to decrease their symptoms and gradually they're weaned off that medication. So that's probably one of the most common things if there's been opiate exposures that we're monitoring for uh, signs of withdrawal in the newborn period. Well, that's the newborn period. Okay. And that usually at the, at the most, what would last a couple of months? Is that the typical time you would worry about uh, I think, think typically. Typically, within the first few days, you'll see evidence, and usually within the first week or so, many children may be able to wean off 
of whatever they're being treated with. But yes, symptoms may be occurring for a couple of months with increased jitteriness. It's sometimes hard to tell if this is related to withdrawal or if this is just an infant who may be on the higher end of activity level. But So that's in the yeah. newborn period. Um, yeah, what about further down? What should parents be aware it, of about long-term impacts of opiate so exposure? Yeah. Interestingly, um, for the reasons I mentioned before, we don't think that people always use just one substance. So the long-term effects of narcotic exposures, opiate exposures, um, is really less well-studied than a lot of other things. We are clear about the narcotic abstinence syndrome in the newborn period, but long-term, there are very good animal studies that it can affect neurotransmitters, but many other things like your environment medications can affect neurotransmitter functioning as well. We do have some evidence that opiate exposure in during pregnancy is later related to challenges with executive functioning, with attention, impulse control, level of activity. But I would mention the caveat that these are not studies that are well controlled. For example, we don't know that um, this is not a genetic risk. So most adults who are using opiates may have an underlying developmental mental health concern that contributes to use of substances or allows them to have more concerns with their use that leads to addiction that leads to potential prenatal exposure. So what I'm what I'm trying to say here is there's some evidence that we do see challenges with executive functioning, impulse control and attention in some individuals exposed to opiates, but in general we're not clear that this is a direct correlation between their opiate exposure in the newborn period, and those later concerns. It may reflect a genetic risk, which also reflects why parents may be using opiates in the first place. That's such a good point. It would be so difficult to, to design a study that could tease out all of that because you're exactly right. Now, people with impulse control problems may be more likely just in general um, to be uh, taking um, drugs and particularly taking drugs during pregnancy, and so, um, and, and that we know is a, is a heritable uh, trait. So that's such a good point. Okay, let's talk about heroin because we certainly see a rise of that right now, um, and we think of it as one of the hardest core drugs that there is. Um, so what is the impact uh, on a fetus or a baby whose mom uh, took uh, heroin or, uh, throughout her pregnancy or during her pregnancy? I think heroin exposure is very similar to what I just described in terms of the opiate exposure. Um, basically, okay. heroin um, and then what we use to treat heroin, methadone, for example, methadone is a much longer-acting medication, but essentially the long-term outcome suggests the major risks are really neonatal abstinence syndrome in the newborn period and potential vulnerabilities of executive functioning later in life. I think one thing I will mention is that heroin is most commonly injected, although it may be taken in other ways. Um, but if a birth mother is using intravenous anything, heroin, other substances, it's also important to consider things that may be transmitted by sharing needles, et cetera. And so with heroin use, unlike prescription opiate use that is usually taken by mouth, we also think about things like hepatitis C, HIV, that can also be spread through blood transmission um, with intravenous needles. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and Hep B and Hep C. Just, I realize that could be a, a very long answer. But if the uh, is, is there a short form answer to that one? If the mom has Hep B or Hep C, what are the chances that the child will also uh, develop uh, that disease? Those diseases. I'm going to answer hepatitis B first. Um, we have very good evidence that if we know a birth mother has hepatitis B, is actually a carrier either chronically infected at a low level or a very active infection with hepatitis B, that if the newborn is treated, both vaccinated and provided passive antibody in the newborn period, it's highly unlikely that the baby will not carry hepatitis B. Um, very low percentages, as in the single-digit percent that a baby would actually have hepatitis B transmitted prior to birth if the baby is treated appropriately. All pregnant women are expected to be screened for hepatitis B. Even if a birth mother is not known to be screened, that will be checked 
in the perinatal period and the baby will be checked for evidence of antibodies or antigen um, as well. So hepatitis B, we do have a strategy to prevent if we know or suspect a baby may have been exposed to hepatitis B. With hepatitis C, we don't have a method to reduce transmission. So what we know from epidemiologic studies is that perhaps 90 to 95% of infants born to a mother who's hepatitis C positive will not become infected, meaning less than 10% of children exposed to hepatitis C will. This is something that we can't test in the newborn period definitively, so it does take uh, several months before we're able to say whether a baby is a carrier of hepatitis C or not over time. And that is one thing that I think prospective adoptive parents want to consider, and ideally before they even see a referral, is would they be willing to consider a baby who's hepatitis C positive? Because that's one of the more common questions that I receive is what does it mean long term and and what can we do? And if a child is testing positive at birth, um, is what are the percentages that the child actually has hepatitis C versus the child is the ch- the test result is reflective of the Hep C antibodies that that the child picked up from the mom. I think if the baby's testing positive with hepatitis C antibodies at birth, we know that that's really the mother's antibody. So it's a five to ten percent chance that's a baby who would chronically have hepatitis C. Okay, so we simply have to, and, and, and the, the time period could be as, uh, up to six months or so before we could test the baby to know whether Correct. the baby it, uh, uh, itself has hep C. Okay. Correct. Uh, I have a question on methadone. I mean, the reason that it, it seems to me, just from a logical standpoint, to think that the impact of methadone would be less than the impact of, of illegal drug use, you know, uh, from in because it, if nothing else, it's controlled. People are are in a controlled environment. Does that, um, if they're on a, a methadone replacement type of treatment for their drug addiction, does that hold true, or does methadone is it as dangerous as the drug that it is intended to replace? Uh, that's a really good question, and I'm not aware of any really good studies that have examined that from the long-term outcomes for children. Uh, I would say that for a birth mother, it's much better in her life to be on a stable dose of methadone um, and gradually weaning down on that over time rather than um, intermittent, much shorter lasting heroin exposures and the risk of intravenous drug use. But from the pharmacologic perspective, they're very related. They affect the same neurotransmitters. And so the long-term outcome we think is is quite similar. I think one thing that I would also mention is purely because someone is in a methadone program is not a guarantee that they're not using other substances. That's a really good point. Yeah, that's actually a very good point to make, um, including alcohol. Um, all right, how about uh, methamphetamines? Methamphetamine is, depending on the part of the country that a, a birth mother is um, residing in, um, we're seeing a range of exposure to methamphetamine. So fortunately, over the last decade or so, we've seen a reduction in methamphetamine use, and we do have some long-term studies that show methamphetamine use is one of the more concerning substances that a mother could be using in pregnancy. And what I mean by that is there are probably neonatal findings. So we see infants who are much more emotionally reactive, jittery, challenging to soothe, and then over time, in preschooler, schooler-age children, we're seeing more concerns with hyperactivity, um, aggressive behaviors, but also more concerns with depression and anxiety. Um, similar caveat to what I've mentioned with other substances is that individuals who are using methamphetamine may have underlying concerns that contribute to their starting and continuing to use a substance. So that's another confounder with this population. But interestingly, I think with methamphetamine, we're seeing both externalizing symptoms, that's the ADHD-type symptoms, and internalizing symptoms like anxiety and depression as outcomes later in life for children who are exposed. 
That's interesting because you would think that it would go one way or the other um, as far as the symptoms, whether it would make uh, you know the the anxiety versus the and depression versus the ADHD and the hyperactivity and the uh, uh, acting out to more uh, more active children. That's interesting. Huh. It, it um, may it may be related to the timing of exposure and what's being affected in development. Um, and there, it's not it's not uncommon that also certain environmental exposures may have gender differences. So, for example, the same exposure might in boys cause more externalizing problems and girls more internalizing uh, symptoms like depression and anxiety. But I think there's a lot we really don't know about methamphetamine exposure. What about marijuana? Marijuana. Um, yeah, impact of marijuana. So... There's there's a very uh, in some states more than others and in my home state right now there's a big pro marijuana lobby um, that's attempting to demonstrate that there are no long term concerns with marijuana. I think unfortunately um, we have good evidence that chronic use of marijuana certainly affects developed and developing brains. So there's no reason to think it would have no effect on um, an unborn child. So um, we don't have studies that are very clear about a specific prenatal exposure to marijuana profile. What we do have is a variety of different studies, some of which suggest greater challenges with overall cognition, overall IQ, some that suggest decreased abilities to self-regulate, pay attention and focus, um, and then some that's all, that can show increased risk in depressive symptoms if you're prenatally exposed to marijuana. I think stepping back, what we do know is that marijuana um, and many of the substances that may be smoked with it, for example, may decrease the blood supply, so children who are exposed to a variety of smoking um, during pregnancy um, may have a lower birth weight than they otherwise would. And we do have some evidence that there's an increased risk of adolescent marijuana use in those who are exposed prenatally. Um, again, like a lot of natural studies, this isn't a random controlled trial, so we can't really say, oh, this is absolutely because of the exposure. It may be because birth parents who are using marijuana may be more likely to yeah. continue using it when they have an adolescent in the house. So it's it's yeah. not really clear. But I think there's a lot of signal there that um, prenatal marijuana exposure is, is not something that's benign. And I think over time, with the increasing prevalence of it, we'll probably, and especially with the fact that it's legal in a number of states, we may have more information that's a little bit more clear about this. Yeah, I think we're going to be seeing this will be an issue that we'll have to continue to follow. And I think you, other than you had just talked about uh, tobacco, smoking tobacco as well, we don't tend to, again, it's legal, so we don't tend to think of that as an impact, uh, a teratogenic impact on a fetus. But, in fact, you just mentioned, uh, I think you just mentioned that we see lower birth rate uh, for uh, infants whose mothers smoke during pregnancy. Are there any other impacts that we've seen um, on smoking of tobacco on the baby or child? Um, again, these are these are studies where um, there there are some evidence that individuals exposed to cigarettes prior to birth may have greater challenges with what we call executive functioning, um, organizing, goal-directed activities, impulse control, similar to ADHD. The caveat being. Individuals who tend to smoke in certain parts of the country right now are more likely to have ADHD and other underlying concerns, so this may reflect the genetic predisposition. Um, I think cigarette exposure is something that we commonly see. Um, I would remind people that while the public health message is pretty clear that cigarette use is discouraged during pregnancy, those of us born one or two generations ago in this country were probably exposed to a lot more cigarette exposure in utero, and I'm not saying it does nothing, but it's not a big red flag um, from my perspective. It may reduce birth weight for each child exposed, but it's by several ounces, and from a public health perspective, perspective, it's a big issue. For an individual child, it's probably not one of the biggest concerns. You know, one of the things that probably the question, one of the questions we get um, the most is it has to do with families, our, our prospective adoptive parents, who are uh, 
either either way, the child is either not born dependent, but the uh, expectant mom, or at this point the birth mom, um, acknowledged using drugs, but the child is not born dependent. So the adoptive family <laughs> believes that that means the child will not have any of the impacts associated with prenatal exposure, or vice versa, the child is born dependent, and therefore they believe that the impacts will be more significant. So how does the uh, uh, the fact that a, a baby is born dependent or not impact the long-term effects of exposure, prenatal exposure? Uh, very good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have a very good answer. Um, I think <laughs> that certainly a child who is showing signs of withdrawal in the newborn period needs to be appropriately treated if they're withdrawing from opiates. And clearly that's one thing that we know. Certainly a child who has classic features suggested of, of alcohol exposure, facial features, growth concerns, we can be more likely that this may contribute to long-term developmental concerns. For a lot of the other substances that we've described, um, we don't really expect to see a lot in the newborn period or may not see a lot in the newborn period. But as children get older and school age, adolescence, where what is just developing part of their brain in the newborn period needs to be more fully used, hopefully in adolescence and adulthood, we may see greater signs of what uh, may occur. I just want to emphasize this isn't different if we're talking about a child who joins a family via adoption or a birth child. It's, it's exactly the same that it's very hard to predict in the newborn period children who will have ADHD or developmental challenges or who will be extremely bright or will have reading disabilities. Um, genetics helps us predict. Prenatal exposure is really a fact is the way I would describe it, um, but it's only one piece of the puzzle. Um, I think that exposure or known exposure to substances is a risk factor for later concerns, but it, there is a lot that can be done in the environment that can ameliorate some of these concerns as well. Right, especially parents who know and are on the lookout and can utilize early intervention uh, techniques. We know that those children tend to do better. We have a question from Robert. He says, if the birth mother stopped using drugs and drinking when she found out she was pregnant at nine weeks, will the baby be spared the worst of the impact? And that I kind would of gets expect the entire idea of ex timing of exposure. So you can kind of just kind of expand that to uh, talking a bit about the timing of exposure. Yes, I would expect that it's always positive a birth mother is able to stop using substances and drinking as soon as she knows that she's pregnant. Um, if a birth mother um, were to use, let's say, alcohol one to two days after conception, but before the embryo implants, we would expect essentially no effects from the substance because there's no blood um, connection at that point in time. As the brain is developing throughout pregnancy, um, the longer one is exposed to a substance, the greater likelihood that there's going to be an effect on a developing brain. So uh, we generally would say substances that affect higher order um, brain processes, things such as attention um, and executive functioning, if you're exposed earlier in pregnancy, there tends to be less long-term effect than if you're exposed later in pregnancy. Um, so I do think it's not always all or nothing. Less exposure can be a very good thing. And uh, if I'm working with prospective parents and they have this question, I think supporting a birth mother and stopping as much as we can is, is the best course of action. Another question that uh, another uh, uh, medical issue, medical risk that uh, prospective adoptive parents have to often have to de determine how serious and what, what they need to know about is the heritability of certain mental illnesses. So let's take like, uh, we'll go through a list of mental illnesses, but we'll start with bipolar. If the birth uh, mother or the birth father is bipolar and has been diagnosed bipolar or undiagnosed but, but suspecting bipolar, what are the odds that the child will develop bipolar? I think that's a, a very good question. Um, 
if a birth parent um, has a child and they themselves have bipolar disorder, the chance is perhaps up to 10% that they may have a child who has bipolar disorder. But if both parents have bipolar disorder, it's closer to 40 or 50%. One caveat I would mention with bipolar disorder is that it's something that is diagnosed generally later in adolescence, early adulthood, based on a long list of symptoms. Not all, but many of those symptoms overlap significantly with behavioral concerns we often see with people with substance use problems who are withdrawing from substances or individuals with a history of significant trauma. And I think I'm always cautious when discussing with prospective parents someone's history of bipolar disorder, and if that has been diagnosed earlier in childhood or if there have been manic episodes, I feel much more comfortable that this truly is bipolar disorder. But that would be one caveat is that with bipolar, we're not always sure that's the best description. It may be behavioral presentations related to other things that are contributing to these symptoms. Really good point there. I'm so glad you pointed that out. I had a um, a, a doctor on the show one time said that diagnosing bipolar is more art than science, and it's uh, it's probably important to um, think in terms of, of that when you're dealing with a diagnosis in an expectant parent or a birth parent. Um, what about schizophrenia? I think schizophrenia is something that we can be much clearer that that's an actual diagnosis. I want to emphasize schizophrenia has both genetic, known genetic, and known environmental triggers. So um, the numbers are strikingly similar. Most people would say if one parent has a diagnosis of schizophrenia, it's about a 10% chance for their child. If both parents have schizophrenia, it's closer to 50%. Um, And the farther you are removed genetically from an affected person, the lower your risk. And I think it's important to realize we're pretty clear that around the world schizophrenia happens in about 1% of people. So um, that that's important to keep in mind. Um, with schizophrenia, I feel much more comfortable if that's a diagnosis because it is it has a much better behavioral profile. People are routinely diagnosed with schizophrenia primarily because that's what they have, not because there's something else. But, again, substance abuse, severe substance use can present in this way as well. What about depression? How heritable Uh, is depression? We know depression is heritable, but we also know depression, anxiety, which are often comorbid, um, are highly prevalent in the population. Some people would say 10 to 15% of people at least. We talk about postpartum depression occurring in 10% of women. So I think with depression or anxiety, I think about that as most of us have a family history of depression or anxiety to some extent for any prospective parents, birth or adoptive. I would say that planning ahead for monitoring for depression and anxiety, if there's a family history, is a good way to approach this. And typically, we do have treatments, behavioral and medically, to help individuals with depression. A question that we sometimes get um, usually falls under kind of the general rubric of antisocial behavior. Sometimes one of the uh, birth parents will have been in jail um, or uh, for a, a violent act, or that's not terribly common, but uh, it's, the parents, prospective adoptive parents wonder, is is this antisocial behavior something that they need to be on the lookout for or concerned about? Is that something that their child can inherit? I think that's a very difficult question. I think a lot of violent behavior that we see or things that are described as antisocial are behaviors that are driven by reactions to previous trauma or impulse control concerns. And while I don't want to ever minimize that, I think it's really important to consider within the context of any individual's previous life experience, what are some other things that might be contributing to these behaviors? While it is true that there can be some heritability of um, conduct concerns or real significant behavioral disorders, I think it's very important to try to understand what else may have contributed to that, and I'm much less concerned that that's a heritable disorder than some of the other things we just discussed. Yes. So, for instance, if a um, if there was domestic violence and the uh, the birth father um, had uh, 
either with the birth mother or someone else and is either in jail or not. The concern that that, that type, that domestic violence or that violence is something that the child would inherit is 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 not as likely as it's that the violent behavior was triggered by something in that uh, birth father's life that would have led him to um, become antisocial or become violent. Is that am I understanding you correctly? Um, I think we probably have less evidence about answering this question than most of the other questions that you've asked me. But I guess to use the example of domestic violence in a home, um, domestic violence highly correlated with substance use, previous history of trauma, impulse control disorders. And those are things that we've talked about certainly can be genetically heritable, but everyone who has ADHD does not abuse substances and does not have significant concerns with domestic violence. So I think there are a lot of environmental um, protective factors for individuals who might have a family history of domestic violence or other behaviors of concern that can be put into place that are very protective for children. And should adoptive parents worry if the expectant mom has not had prenatal care? We get that question a fair amount. is that is that inherently what should a parent worry about if the mom has has not been seeing a doctor? I think what I often uh, discuss with parents is that a baby born healthy at full term without any prenatal care is just as healthy as a baby born with adequate prenatal care. And most babies born around the world don't have prenatal care. The importance of prenatal care is actually to assure that a baby is not having challenges during the pregnancy or that a mother is maintaining her health. Um, It does help us in the world of adoption to understand more about a birth mother if there are more points of contact. So someone who's reliably maintaining their prenatal visits, um, we have an expectation that this is someone who probably um, is taking relatively good care of their health. I think with unknown pregnancies or unacknowledged pregnancies and someone who's actively avoiding prenatal care is a little bit different than someone who um, doesn't have a home address and doesn't have access to medical care. So um, the rest of the story around why there wasn't prenatal care is important to consider, but I think I view it as many babies who have no prenatal care are born uh, quite healthy. It's really more about what are the other potential factors that could contribute to why there was no care. Um, it's also certainly even in 2016 possible to be in the United States as a pregnant person and not have great health care. So that may lead to some avoiding of the prenatal uh, visits as well. Right, as well as somebody who is not acknowledging or not at least publicly acknowledging their pregnancy might be less likely at that point to be seeking out Correct. medical care as well. Right. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lisa Prock, for being uh, with us today to talk about the medical risk issues in domestic infant adoption. It's been very helpful, and we truly appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Okay. If you have enjoyed our show and want to help us grow, please rate this podcast on iTunes. If you have iTunes on your computer or phone, just type in Creating a Family, and then you can give it a ranking. And if you've got an extra minute, you can actually write a comment. We would appreciate either. Thank you so much, and we will see you next week. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.